Hi, welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 144, True Self-Awareness Through the Godhead. Hello, I'm so glad you're here. Before we get started, I just want to let you know that I'm not going to include the chapter, John chapter one at the end of this episode, because this episode got a little longer than I prefer for it to be. So I will put that as a separate episode that will be posted at the same time. So just know that there are two episodes for you to get to this week. If you're wanting to listen to me read John chapter one. And if you're wanting to zip through the Gospels a little faster, remember that I recorded all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in 22 episodes in December. So you can continue on with that if you want to be reading more of it. Okay, I have been excited for this week because we are talking about John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is one of the primary chapters or scriptures put forward by Christian religions to quote, prove that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not a Christian religion. The majority of Christians believe in what is called the Trinity. And the Trinity is, according to Wikipedia, the belief that God is three distinct persons who are co-eternal, co-equal, and indivisibly united in one being or essence. There is a small minority of Christian religions that do not believe in the Trinity, and you guessed it, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is at the very top of that list as the largest non-Trinitarian Christian religion. Now, I'm going to try and explain why I find this so interesting. I listen to a fair amount of Christian podcasts and sermons, and I will hear them talk about this every once in a while about John chapter one. And it's so interesting to me because I get where they're coming from and why they believe that based on John chapter one. It, it isn't illogical. However, when you have more context, like we do because of modern day revelation, it's so clear to me what John chapter one is actually meaning and what the context about who Jesus Christ really is and that he's the God of the old Testament and is Jehovah and was with the father in the pre-mortal existence. And that anyway, all of that stuff that we know, it makes so much more sense, but I do understand based on John chapter one, why they believe what they do. I do still think that there's much conflicting the, the point of view that the King James version of John chapter one puts forward, I think it conflicts a lot with the rest of, of even just the gospels. And we'll get into that a little bit later, but for now, let's start by just reading. I'm, I'm really going to focus on the first nine verses. And actually we get, we go a little bit farther, a little later in the episode, but I'm going to focus on the first nine verses of John chapter one. And in case you're new to this podcast, my goal is not necessarily always to go through all of the content. Usually I choose a focus and I focus in on that and just go wherever the spirit leads me. There are definitely plenty of other podcasts that you can go to, to get a more complete view of everything that's in the chapters. So just so you know that that's my focus. Okay. Let's start with John chapter one, verse one, King James version. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Okay, so reading this, I'm sure you can see without the context that we have in the Lord's Restored Church, 
you can understand why this would be the interpretation that the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son are one being. This is one of the reasons that the first vision of Joseph Smith was so deeply profound and shocking. In Joseph Smith's own words, he says, When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. As Joseph continues his story, and he's talking about enduring persecution, his mind went here. He says, However, it was nevertheless a fact that I had beheld a vision. I have thought since that I felt much like Paul when he made his defense before King Agrippa and related the account of the vision he had when he saw a light and heard a voice. But still there were but few who believed him. Some said he was dishonest, others said he was mad, and he was ridiculed and reviled. But all this did not destroy the reality of his vision. He had seen a vision, he knew he had, and all the persecution under heaven could not make it otherwise. And though they should persecute him unto death— Yet he knew, and would know to his latest breath, that he had both seen a light and heard a voice, speaking unto him, and all the world could not make him think or believe otherwise. So it was with me. I had actually seen a light. In the midst of that light I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying— I was led to say in my heart, why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision, and who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision, I knew it, and I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it, neither dared I do it. At least I knew that by so doing, I would offend God and come under condemnation. So there it is. Bold testimony from the prophet Joseph that there were two distinct personages, the father and the son. Joseph Smith's vision was also another proof that the father and the son have bodies, physical bodies, that house their spirits just like ours. The fact that they are two separate beings is reinforced over and over again throughout the New Testament as Christ speaks of submitting to the will of the father, a distinct and separate person. How can he submit to the will of someone who is also himself? When Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Ghost descended in the form of a dove, and God the Father spoke, three separate beings, Jesus Christ in the water, the Holy Ghost descending as a dove, and a separate voice bearing testimony of the Son. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asked that this cup might be passed from him, who is he asking? Himself? No, he was asking a distinct and separate person, his Father in spirit and in body. And then again, he submitted to the will of of that person, his father. Now, like I said, we have so much context that much of the Christian world, actually all of the Christian world, doesn't have. We have the pre-mortal context. We have the post-mortal context in that we we know what's going to happen after we die to some extent. We know what the purpose of our life is and what the end goal is. We know that we and Jesus Christ existed before we came here and that we came here to acquire bodies. We know more about who Satan was and is. So with that context, all this makes so much sense, but you can imagine without that context, all of this sounds a little crazy. If you hear an idea where you know this abstract version of who God is, and then you're given all these details that you don't actually think are true, and it feels blasphemous probably. But do you know what I think about sometimes? The easiest answer is usually the right one. 
we have the entirety of the New Testament that testifies fairly plainly that the Father and Son are separate beings. But then we have this little section in John that confuses people into thinking that they are one being. What is the easiest answer? That everything else in the New Testament that seems to contradict John chapter 1, that you have to do mental gymnastics to reconcile everything together? Or the Bible is an ancient text that has been translated and manipulated over time with things lost just like the apostles and the authority with them was lost. So with all that in mind, now let's read the Joseph Smith translation version. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made which was made. In Him was the gospel, and the gospel was the life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the world, and the world perceiveth it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came into the world for a witness, to bear witness of the light, to bear record of the gospel through the Son, unto all, that through him men might believe. He was not that light, but came to bear witness of that light, which was the true light, which lighteth every man who cometh into the world, even the Son of God, he who was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. We should be so grateful for the additional context and clarity that we're given through things like Joseph Smith translation, that all makes a whole lot more sense. Okay. What I want to really focus in on today is the Godhead. These scriptures give us the perfect opportunity to ponder who is the Godhead, who are the father, the son, and Holy ghost. What do we know about them as three separate beings? And why is that important? It is important because as we get to know them, as we understand them better, we are able to understand who we are without understanding them, without understanding who God is and what his purpose is, without understanding Jesus Christ and why he came to the earth and what his role was before and after, without understanding the Holy Ghost and why he is important in our lives and why he is there and the role that he plays. We cannot fully understand ourselves. And ultimately here on the earth, I don't think we can fully understand and comprehend who we really are, but the best way I think we can get to know that, get to know who we really are is to understand the Godhead. So I want to start with Jesus Christ, the son of God, who is Jesus Christ. Let's read about him in the Bible dictionary, the anointed or Messiah Jesus, who is called Christ, is the firstborn of the Father in the Spirit, and the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. He is Jehovah. Side note commentary. Jehovah, who created the world, which goes along with how most Christians interpret chapter 1. They just don't realize that the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, is Jesus Christ speaking as God. Continuing with the Bible Dictionary. He is Jehovah and was foreordained to his great calling in the grand councils before the world was. He was born of Mary of Bethlehem, lived a sinless life, and wrought out a perfect atonement for all mankind by the shedding of his blood and his death on the cross. He rose from the grave and brought to pass the bodily resurrection of every living thing and the salvation and exaltation of the faithful. He is the greatest being to be born on this earth, the perfect example, and all religious things should be done in his name. 
He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Creator, the Savior, the God of the whole earth, the Captain of our salvation, the bright and morning star. He is in all things, above all things, through all things, and round all things. He is Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. His name is above every name and is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. He will come again in power and glory to dwell on the earth and will stand as judge of all mankind at the last day. Elder G. Smith said, Who is he who is called Jesus the Christ? Do you know him? When he was praying to the Father just prior to his crucifixion, he said, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. In that council in heaven, the plan and purpose of this earth life was explained to all the spirits. And then the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one answered like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. He who was selected as Jehovah, the oldest, who had promised that in going he would honor the Father and give him all the glory. The Father declared, This is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Jehovah was then, under the direction of the Father, the creator of the earth, and many other worlds. Moses was shown in vision many lands, and each land was called earth, and there were inhabitants on the face thereof. God declared to Moses, By the word of my power have I created them, which is mine only begotten Son, who is full of grace and truth. And worlds without number have I created, and I also created them for mine own purpose, and by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. On numerous occasions he declared that he was the Christ, the Son of God. Is it any wonder that he, the Son of God, the great Creator, had power over the elements of this earth, even to violate the law of gravity by walking on the water? I suppose it was quite simple for him, the Creator, when obligated to provide wine at the wedding feast to change the water to wine. Nor was it a trick of the imagination when he fed 5,000 plus the women and children with a few loaves and fishes, and on another occasion, 4,000 plus women and children. He also showed his power over the elements when at his command to be still the stormy sea was calmed. He demonstrated his power over the animal kingdom on two separate occasions. At his command, a great catch of fish was made when they had no success before. He showed his power over the vegetable kingdom when he cursed the fig tree. On each occasion, he was declared to be the Christ, the literal Son of God. He healed all manner of illness or disease. At his command, the evil spirits departed, they too declaring who he was. He made the blind to see, the lame to walk. Yes, he even controlled life itself, for he restored Lazarus to life, who had been declared dead for four days. There were others too. Yes, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He had dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth, in the earth, on the earth, and in the heaven above the earth. All he did was for others, and was a life of service. There was not one selfish act. Approaching the finish of his mission here, he prayed to the Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He took upon himself the sins of all who shall repent, and gave his life that all might live. He brought about the resurrection for all. Do you realize that the creation of this earth and all the work of Jesus and the prophet since the very beginning— 
was for you, that you might have immortality and eternal life just as much as it was for anyone else. Isn't that something that is just mind boggling? And I feel like none of us can really usually wrap ever, not usually ever wrap our minds around the fact that just as the atonement and sacrifice of Jesus Christ was for everyone, it was also individually for you. I I don't think I can fully wrap my mind around it, but I have faith that it's true. All right, let's move on to Heavenly Father, who is God. Now I'm going to read about him in the Bible dictionary again. And have you guys read the Bible dictionary recently? It's so good. I know it's kind of cheesy, like beginning your talk, like the definition of love, according to Webster's dictionary is, (laughs) but the Bible dictionary one is not that, but it's so good. And there's so much good stuff in it. Okay. So God, the Supreme governor of the universe and the father of mankind. I don't have an answer for this, but why did they use the word governor? That's interesting. We learn from the revelations that have been given that there are three separate persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. From Latter-day Revelation, we learn that the Father and the Son have tangible bodies of flesh and bone, and that the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit without flesh and bone. When one speaks of God, it is generally the Father who is referred to, that is, Elohim, which, side note, is plural. So does Elohim mean both the mother and father? All mankind are his children. Although God created all things and is the ruler of the universe, being omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent through his spirit, mankind has a special relationship to him that differentiates man from all other created things. Man is literally God's offspring, made in his image, whereas all other things are but the work of his hands. The God of the scriptures is a holy being. Man is commanded to be holy because God is holy. God can be known only by revelation. He must be revealed or remain forever unknown. God first revealed himself to Adam and has repeatedly made himself known by revelation to chosen patriarchs and prophets since that time. The present translation of John chapter 1 verse 18 and 1 John chapter 4 verse 12 is misleading. For these say that no man has ever seen God. However, the scriptures state that there have have been many who have seen him. The Joseph Smith translation corrects these items to show that no one has seen God except through faith and also that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. God the Father and his Son have been manifested by voice, sight, or otherwise at various times, as at the baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration, to Stephen, and to the Nephites. The Father and the Son personally visited Joseph Smith in the Sacred Grove in the spring of 1820 near Manchester, New York, in the opening of the Dispensation of the Fullness of Times. Latter-day Revelation confirms the biblical account of God as the literal father of the human family, as a being who is concerned for the welfare of mankind, and as a personage who hears and answers prayers. Sometimes I've had a hard time feeling connected to God because we talk so much about Jesus Christ and we know so much more about Jesus Christ. But as I read that, and as I read about the gospel in general and about Jesus Christ, we know a lot about God because we know a lot about his work and his glory and what he is doing to bring to pass the salvation of man. We know God's character. We know what he cares about. I think we know more about God then a lot of times we feel like we do. And I think prayer is one way that we can feel personally connected to him. We don't pray to Jesus Christ when we kneel down and say formal prayers. We say, Dear Heavenly Father, or Lord, or however you want to open your prayer, we address it to God the Father. 
Now, this next quote I found really interesting because I actually hadn't ever read this particular quote before. I had heard people talk about this, but I wasn't really sure if this was like doctrine, doctrine, or if it was just kind of people theorizing. But this is a quote from Joseph Smith that I found on the church's website. God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man. If the veil were rent today, if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form, like yourselves in all the person image and very form as a man. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for certainty the character of God, which is what we just talked about. We know for certainty the character of God. And if we don't, if you don't, that's something that you can aspire to do and to accomplish as you grow in your in your testimony. And to know that we may converse with him as one converses with another, that he was once a man like us, yea, that God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. Just mind-blowing to think about that. And actually, I was kind of going down a rabbit hole really thinking about all the implications of that and what the timeline of all eternity was like. And I don't know, it's kind of crazy to think about, but really cool quote. Bruce R. McConkie said, properly understood the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John contain the purest and most expansive accounts of the nature and kind of being that God is that can be found anywhere in revealed word. All Christians are assumed to know that God in the meridian day was in Christ manifesting himself to the world. We know what Christ was like as a mortal, and we know the kind of body he now possesses in glorious immortality. Thus, we are not left in darkness nor in doubt as to the character, perfections, and attributes of the Father, nor as to the kind of body now possessed by the Father of the Son of Man." Brigham Young said, I want to tell you, each and every one of you, that you are well acquainted with God, our Heavenly Father, or the great Elohim. You are all well acquainted with Him, for there is not a soul of you, but what has lived in His house and dwelt with Him year after year, and yet you are seeking to become acquainted with Him, when the fact is, you have merely forgotten what you did know. There is not a person here today, but what is a son or a daughter of that being— In the spirit world, their spirits were first begotten and brought forth, and they lived there with their parents for ages before they came here. Back to Bruce R. McConkie. He said, As we view the starry heavens with their endless orbs all spinning in assigned spears, as we marvel at the wonders of life in all its varieties, as is found on this and endless other earths, as we think of the miracle of creation, of redemption, and of everlasting life, all operating by the will and at the word of the creator of the universe, we are led to exclaim, how can we conceive of such an omnipotent God? How can mere man ever hope to know him whom it is eternal life to know? Can man comprehend God? Strangely, marvelously, wondrously, the answer is found in the simple declaration that God is our Father. Our finite minds cannot comprehend His infinite laws, but we can envision Him as a Father, as a personal, loving being filled with tenderness and compassion. He is more than the Father of the firstborn, more than the Father of the only begotten in the flesh, more than the Father in the sense that He created the first mortal man. He is, indeed and in fact, the Father of the spirits of all men in the literal and full sense of the word. Each of us was begotten by Him in the premortal life. We are His spirit children. In the ultimate and final sense of the word, the Father is the creator of all things, that He used the Son and others to perform many of the creative acts, delegating to them His creative powers, does not make these others creators in their own right, independent of Him. 
He is the source of all creative power, and he simply chooses others to act for him in many of his creative enterprises. But there are two creative events that are his and his alone. First, he is the father of all spirits, Christ included. None were fathered or created by anyone else. Second, he is the creator of the physical body of man. Though Jehovah and Michael and many of the noble and great ones played their assigned roles in the various creative events, yet when it came time to place man on earth, the Lord God himself performed the creative acts. I, God, created man in mine own image. In the image of mine only begotten created I him. Male and female created I them. Moses 2.27 Only the Father is or could be the author of the plan of salvation. He alone was in a position to ordain the laws and establish the system whereby His spirit children, Christ included, could be saved. Others might perform labors for a portion or for all of the family of God, but only He could create salvation and specify how it might be gained. This concept becomes clear when we learn how God came to be God, how He gained His exaltation, and how He made provision for His spirit children to go and do likewise. As to God's high status as an exalted man, as to how he attained this position of supreme eminence, and as to how we may pursue the same course to the same eternal destiny, the prophet Joseph Smith proclaimed God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. That is the great secret. Let all the saints ponder these words in their hearts. Let them plead for enlightenment from the Holy Spirit. Let them know that the concept involved opens the door to an understanding of the plan of salvation. If the veil were rent today, and the great God who holds this world in its orbit and who upholds all worlds and all things by his power was to make himself visible, I say if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form, like yourselves in all the person, image, and very form as a man. For Adam was created in the very fashion, image, and likeness of God, and received instruction from and walked, talked, and conversed with him, as one man talks and communes with another. Oh, how great the importance to make these things known unto all men, so that they no longer worship gods of their own creating. Isn't that last part so cool? Oh, how great the importance to make these things known unto all men, so that they no longer worship gods of their own creating. Oh, that, I'll just let you ruminate on that. That is just awesome. Okay, I want to move on to the Holy Ghost. Bible Dictionary again. The third member of the Godhead and a personage of spirit not possessing a body of flesh and bones. The Holy Ghost has been manifest in every dispensation of the gospel since the beginning, being first made known to Adam. The Holy Ghost is manifested to men on the earth both as the power of the Holy Ghost and as the gift of the Holy Ghost. The power can come upon one before baptism and is the convincing witness that the gospel is true. By the power of the Holy Ghost, a person receives a testimony of Jesus Christ and of his work and the work of his servants upon the earth. The gift can come only after proper and authorized baptism and is conferred by the laying on of hands, as in Acts and Moroni 2. The gift of the Holy Ghost is the right to have, whenever one is worthy, the companionship of the Holy Ghost. For those who receive this gift, the Holy Ghost acts as a cleansing agent to purify them and sanctify them from all sin. Thus, it is often spoken of as fire. The manifestation on the day of Pentecost was the gift of the Holy Ghost that came upon the twelve, without which they were not ready for their ministries to the world. For some reason not fully explained in the scriptures, the Holy Ghost did not operate in the fullness among the Jews during the years of Jesus' mortal sojourn. Statements to the effect that the Holy Ghost did not come until after Jesus was resurrected must of necessity refer to that particular dispensation only. 
For it is abundantly clear that the Holy Ghost was operative in earlier dispensations. Furthermore, it has reference only to the gift of the Holy Ghost not being present. Since the power of the Holy Ghost was operative during the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus, otherwise no one would have received a testimony of the truths that these men taught. When a person speaks by the power of the Holy Ghost, that same power carries a conviction of the truth unto the heart of the hearer. The Holy Ghost knows all things and can lead one to know of future events. Other names that sometimes refer to the Holy Ghost are Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of the Lord, Comforter, and Spirit. Okay, really quick as kind of a, a, an aside, something interesting that I was talking to a friend of mine about is that some people theorize that the Holy Ghost is actually Heavenly Mother. I'm not going to go into that line of thinking on here because I shouldn't really be talking about things that aren't revealed. But let's talk about what has been said about that. Marion G. Romney said this, Jesus referred to the Holy Ghost as a male person. Speaking to his disciples, he said, It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And further, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you in all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall shew it unto you. He continues, That the Holy Ghost is capable of manifesting himself in the form and figure of man, wrote Dr. James E. Talmadge, is indicated by the wonderful interview between the Spirit and Nephi, in which he revealed himself to the prophet, questioned him concerning his desires and belief, instructed him in the things of God, speaking face to face with the man. I spake unto him, says Nephi, as a man speaketh. For I beheld that he was in the form of a man, yet nevertheless I knew that it was the Spirit of the Lord. And he spake unto me as a man speaketh with another. President Heber C. Kimball stated, The Holy Ghost is a man. He is one of the sons of our Father and our God, and he is that man that stood next to Jesus Christ, just as I stand by Brother Brigham. LDSliving.com starts off this quote by quoting Joseph Smith. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. We may infer, therefore, that he will eventually receive a physical body, like every other son and daughter of the Father who is faithful in the first estate. On June 16, 1844, only nine days before the martyrdom, George Lobb, an early member of the church whose journal is an important contemporary source of some of the teachings of Joseph Smith, recorded that the prophet Joseph taught that while the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one or agree in one, the Holy Ghost is yet a spiritual body and waiting to take himself a body as the Savior did or as God the Father did. Okay, so we're going to end our review of who everybody is. But now that we have such a great review of who these three distinct personages are and who they are together, one in purpose, let's read this quote from Joseph Smith. Everlasting covenant was made between these three personages before the organization of this earth. Isn't it interesting to think of them making a covenant with each other as they, as they combine to, to form this Godhead continuing and relates to their dispensation of things to men on the earth. These personages, according to Abraham's record, are called God the first, the creator, God the second, the redeemer, and God the third, the witness or testator. Joseph F. Smith said, There is a oneness in the Godhead as well as a distinctness of personality. This oneness is emphasized in the sayings and writings of the prophets and apostles in order to guard against the erroneous idea that these three may be distinct and independent deities and rivals for our worship. 
The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one in purpose, and that purpose is declared in Moses chapter 1, verse 39. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Okay, I know that all of this has been a big collection of quotes, but I also knew that all of this stuff was way better than anything I had to say. So I hope you enjoyed it. And what I hope you got out of it is how miraculous it is. You were created with the intention of and potential for exaltation, just as the father has achieved exaltation. Their work, the three of them together and glory is to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life an eternal life that by definition is to live the quality of life that our heavenly father lives. In John chapter 1, verse 11, John bears testimony of our potential. He says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, you receive him, right? As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Your existence came about because of our Heavenly Father. That's why it's important that you know who He is, that you know who Jesus Christ is, that you know who the Holy Ghost is, because they are rooting for you. You are their purpose, their work, and their glory. I'm going to end with a quote from my mom, Tani Kemp. I asked her, why is it important to you? Why does it matter in your life for you to know who the Godhead is? And this is her answer. It is important to me to understand who each member of the Godhead is because understanding that sends my spiritual roots deep. Each relationship is deeply personal and unique. Understanding that God, the Father, orchestrated the entire plan of salvation and oversaw the creation of everything helps me understand the depth of His love for me. Every exquisite detail is a message to me that I matter and that I am never unseen. Learning about the life of Jesus Christ and understanding who he is and his role in the plan of our Father in heaven makes me deeply grateful for both his example and sacrifice. Knowing that he was willing to sample mortality in order to understand some of the things that I will go through in my life helps me to trust him and makes me willing to follow him and never give up. Having the gift of the Holy Ghost just really doesn't compare to anything else. Knowing that it is his entire focus to help us navigate this confusing world, through the Holy Ghost I have access to comfort, direction, discernment, energy, encouragement, and so much more. What a loving kindness this gift is. Knowing the role of each and understanding that they all work together for my benefit makes all the difference. I am on a team with the most powerful beings imaginable. We all have the same goal. Knowledge is power. And the knowledge of this particular truth is the most powerful of all. That truth matters every day, but especially on those days when I'm feeling insignificant and discouraged. It's what restores my soul. With their help, I cannot fall. I think... I think that there's a reason that one of the most important, most well-loved and known primary songs is I am a child of God. It matters that you know who you are and that you know who they are. And you can't know who you are if you don't know who they are. President Nelson recently said, I believe that if the Lord were speaking to you directly tonight, the first thing he would make sure you understand is your true identity. My dear friends, you are literally spirit children of God. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.